If you're a leader or an aspiring leader in the business of lifelong learning, you're in the right place. I'm Salisa Steele. And I'm Jeff Cobb. And this is the Leading Learning Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 157 of the Leading Learning Podcast, where we talk yet again with Seth Kahn. Seth is the founder of Visionary Leadership, and he helps guide organizations through large-scale change, innovation, and growth. This is the third time we've had Seth on the podcast, and we keep asking him back because he's always a thoughtful and thought-provoking guest. Before we turn to the conversation with Seth, we want to thank our sponsor for the fourth quarter of 2018. Our sponsor this quarter is Review My LMS, which is a collaboration between our company, Tagoras, and 100 Reviews. As the name suggests, Review My LMS is a site where users can share and access reviews of learning management systems, and the focus is specifically on systems that are a good fit for learning businesses, meaning organizations that market and sell lifelong learning. If you contribute a review, you get access to all existing and future reviews, and there are already more than 100 on the site. And if you don't have a review to contribute, there's also a subscription option. For details, check out ReviewMyLMS.com. Definitely do check out Review My LMS. In fact, the last time I checked it out, there were actually 130 reviews on the site, so building daily. But for now, let's get back to the focus of this episode, which is the conversation with Seth Kahn. And Salisa, I had the privilege of talking with Seth for the, the past two leading learning podcast appearances. I should say the privilege and the pleasure. And this time around, you had that pleasure. What did you and Seth talk about this time? Well, we talk about leadership and specifically some new leadership competencies that Seth's been highlighting Because of recent changes, what it takes to lead successfully requires some additional skills these days. So we dig into some of the seven new leadership competencies Seth identified. Along with leadership, we get into innovation and talk specifically about sustaining innovation versus disruptive innovation. And we touch on collective impact. That is what it takes to organize for large-scale change. And Jeff, as you and I have talked about, you know, that large scale change, that collective impact is really what it takes when an organization wants to use learning to move the needle in an entire industry or profession. So leadership, innovation, collective impact, these are all areas um, that Seth's really passionate about and been working in for a long time. And as you noted at, at the very outset, Jeff, you know, Seth is both thoughtful and thought provoking. And he's always thinking big, which is one of the things I love about him. I love talking to him, whether it's on the podcast or off the podcast. And I know listeners are really going to enjoy this interview. So let's go ahead and roll the conversation with Seth Kahn. Hello out there. I'm Salisa Steele. This is the Leading Learning Podcast. And today I'm joined by Seth Kahn. Seth is the author of the books Getting Change Right and Getting Innovation Right, and he's the founder of Visionary Leadership, which exists to accelerate visionary leaders' success through impact and profitability on a grand scale. He's worked with more than 100 association and private sector CEOs, and he helps guide organizations through large-scale change, innovation, growth, strategies, and grand challenges. Seth, welcome back to the Leading Learning Podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. 
So to start us off, I want to give you the chance to say a bit more about your background and interests. What else would you like to highlight about yourself and your work for listeners? Well, uh, in the last 10 years, my work has focused almost 100% on associations. And I love associations because each association, whether it's a trade association or a professional society or cause-related, has access to and serves a slice of America and sometimes the world. And um, the wonderful thing about that is that it, it generates a unique set of needs and also potentials, which means that we can activate those social networks uh, not only to provide the members with value, but to provide the rest of the world with value. And so that's that's why I love working with associations, and I focused my career on them over the last ten years. Yeah. So you really are interested in that that big impact that that you can have and that others can have. Um, when I started off, I um, said welcome back, and that's because you've been a guest here twice before, and we'll make sure to link to those past episodes in the show notes. Um, I'm glad to have you back again. You're, you always have insightful comments. Um, and I reached out this time in particular because of a, a brief report that you issued called What It Takes to Lead in 2018, and that highlights seven new leadership competencies. Now, though, when I think about leadership, you know, it's it's ancient, it's literally as old as the the hills. And so why are new competencies needed? And are these new competencies supplanting or augmenting older kind of tried and true leadership competencies? Well, it's an evolutionary process. So many of the um, traditional leadership competencies form the foundation for these. Um, But they're needed because of the amount of disruption, especially when it comes to technology. And uh, when you're working in an environment that's whitewater all the time, uh, you really need a different set of skills than when you're paddling along on what is a relatively stable and calm, you know, lake environment. So these are the skills that really help you with the whitewater environment. Okay, so sort of building on some of the older competencies, but adjusted to uh, the the disruptive current, um, the fast pace of change, those whitewater situations. Correct, yes. So I, I know that um, one of the points you make is that not all innovation is the same, that there are basically flavors of innovation. Um, so you have sustaining innovation and disruptive innovation. What's the difference and why is it important for leaders today to get that distinction? Well, um, there's a there's a, a really significant difference between them. When a lot of times when I talk with uh, CEOs and leaders about disruption, um, they think of a continuum, and on that continuum, at one end is what I would call um, incremental improvement, and that uh, has been around uh, in the business environment ever since there's been business. Uh, it's gained popularity, of course, in the last fifty or sixty years. But uh, that is really different than disruptive innovation. And uh, these ideas were really laid out by Clayton Christensen in his book, The Innovator's Dilemma. Uh, When we talk about uh, incremental improvement uh, in in the innovation space, we're talking about taking products and services that we have today and making them better so that they continue to serve, they continue to delight. Um, This this is where you're uh, working on an existing offering and just bringing it up to date and making sure that it serves people today. Uh, disruptive innovation is a game changer. And that's where you have the uh, whole field reorganized around a new idea, a new way of doing things, a new capability. And many organizations, especially associations, are not designed 
to identify the disruptors um, or, or even to create the disruptors, uh, which is, of course, a, a great business strategy if you're able to do that. Well, so does this mean that uh, leaders need to focus solely on disruptive innovation and sort of eschew the, the sustaining innovation? No, not at all. Uh, sustaining innovation is a way of life. We all have to be improving the products and services that we have. Um, you just want to be careful that you're not blind to disruptors so that they don't hit you broadside or even potentially take you out. Okay, so it's about being uh, aware of both types of innovation and hopefully capitalizing on both types. Absolutely, yes. And I know that one of the other things that you talk and write about, and you mentioned it when you shared a little bit more about your background, is this idea of collective impact. Um, and given my perspective, my focus on learning, you know, I see sort of a corollary or parallel in learning for collective impact. That is, if an organization really wants its educational offerings to make a difference, they need to do more than impact individual learners. It's about impacting an entire profession or field or industry and, and helping um, all, everyone in that profession, field, industry learn and apply what they've learned. But it seems like collective impact can be uh, really tricky to bring about. Um, but I know you've been focused on it for a while. So in what you've observed and, and tried, what have you learned about how collective impact is best achieved? Well, um, there's two things, and this comes uh, right out of the work that's been published in the Stanford Social Innovation for Review on Collective Impact, uh, where they've been studying it for several years and publishing a, a lot of very useful information. I recommend people go there. I think it's SSIR.org. It's uh, free to search and download, and you can just search on the words collective impact. Um, one is that a common agenda needs to be uh, put in place, and that common agenda is the key to um, channeling and corralling the energies of multiple organizations and groups of activists or concerned individuals. It, because collective impact is all about um, working with many organizations, the CEO who uh, decides to lead the charge, so to speak, doesn't have the traditional levers to um, pull people together, to corral them, to channel their efforts. And so it's through that common agenda, that that vision of the future that everybody has a stake in, that the leverage is uh, able to be put in place. The other thing is that the organization that takes on a large collective impact effort uh, is considered the backbone organization. And what that means is that they are tasked with things like the coordination of activities across multiple organizations, uh, metrics, making sure that there's a common set of metrics so that people are able to see results or, or to see that results are not happening so that they can regroup. And the third is communication, making sure that, that people uh, in different organizations and different uh, areas of focus are understanding what's happening in the larger system so that they can react in real time. So that coordination, metrics, and communication are key activities of the backbone organization. And so the, the common agenda, you highlighted that as being so important. Um, and so how, how does a, a group go about um, forming that common uh, agenda that then can really drive things forward? Well, there needs to be some kind of an existential threat usually that the common agenda is uh, centered around. And I say an existential threat because in order to galvanize action, you need to have uh, the core activity framed as a crisis. Otherwise, it just doesn't receive enough priority. Mm. Um, and so 
a great example is the work of Susan Neely at the American Beverage Association, where she was able to see that um, the widespread interest in nutrition was changing the way mothers thought about soda and and what they want how they wanted to use soda and she was able to carry that to coke pepsi and dr pepper and explain to them that uh the idea of you know dispensing these large bottles of soda that have 240 calories of sugar in them in in schools was going to uh be in trouble that it was going to get them in trouble because it was just counter to this large existential threat in society of greater nutrition and so she actually convened focus groups of moms and worked with them and found out that they, they don't mind giving a little bit of sugar as a reward. An 80-calorie can is fine, but not a 240-calorie can. And she was able to organize the three major soda distributors and work together with the Clinton Foundation to implement a program in the schools where in less than three years, they were able to reduce uh, the number of calories in, uh, that kids had access to. Uh, by 90%. And the way that they did that was putting in smaller cans and other options like water. Um, that's an example of a leader taking an existential threat, which is the wave of nutrition awareness that was sweeping through America and the threat that it represented to Coke, Pepsi, and Dr. Pepper, and use it to her advantage so that this actually propelled these organizations forward and gave them something that they could sell uh, in, in place of what was going to be pushed back against. And that's one of the reasons her work, by the way, is one of the reasons why when you go to the grocery store today, you see so many little cans of soda. That's because uh, of what she did. Well, that's great. That's wonderful to hear an example of that, how you sort of translate this existential threat, like you said, this, this major crisis, and then are able to uh, leverage that and use it to achieve a, a common good um, so that it's benefiting everyone. That The second thing you mentioned, that being the backbone, that there's a backbone organization that's focused on things like coordination, communication, metrics. Um, how does uh, how does that organization end up getting chosen when you're dealing with co- collective impact? Well, they have to, they have, to have um, a brand that says they're the organization to do this. So Susan was the CEO of the American Beverage Association. If anyone was going to unite Coke, Pepsi, and Dr. Pepper, it would be her. Um, the American Nurses Association picked the, uh, you know, the common agenda of healthy nurses in our country. Uh, and because they're the American Nurses Association, they had the credibility to do that. That has to be coupled with uh, a solid plan, market outreach. You have to demonstrate that you're taking this seriously and you're gearing up for it. Um, when I worked with Marla Weston at the American Nurses Association, our first meeting uh, where we brought in partners, we brought in Harvard Medical School, CVS Caremark, um, a number of large hospital systems. And, you know, because we brought in these heavy duty players, we broadcast the message that we were going to do this for real. And of course, then we structured the meeting so that we had data, we had core ideas, we were able to kind of uh, develop and co-create the playground that we would work in to get the results that we wanted. Um, All of this sends the message to those partners that you are taking this very seriously, that you're investing in it, that you'll be putting time, money, people against this, and that you're looking to create results on a grand scale. So that... That coupling of the brand that says you're the right group to do this, along with the, uh, the effort uh, matching the level of challenge, uh, is what sends the message and enrolls people. Okay, great. 
so to switch gears a little bit, um, uh, I know that um, that you have a. Uh, uh, a friend who says, you know, uh, hurry up and slow down so that you can go faster. And, and I love that uh, quote. Um, what is that paradox that hurry up and slow down so you can go faster? What does that mean to you? How does it play out in your life and work? Well, it's a great quote. It's my friend Rob Creekmore who says that. And he um, he was referring to mindfulness meditation, which is uh, something that I practice and I actually teach in a lot of my CEO uh, development seminars. And um, mindfulness is a process where you, you know, you, you sit and you're quiet uh, inside of yourself and you're able to kind of create a still place. And from that still place, you're able to see very clearly uh, what it is that is going to be most powerful. A lot of times leaders get stretched in so many different directions. There's so much activity going on that they're getting a hit you know, with one challenge after the next in rapid succession, and they can move into a mode of triage and lose their strategic focus. So what I'm talking about here is taking the time to see clearly the strategic focus so that you can ensure that your actions are aligned with your uh, longer term, more valuable goals. Well, and my, my guess is that this view of taking that time to see the strategic uh, implications and strategic goals is tied in with with one of the other leadership competencies that that you highlight in the report, which is intentional self-transformation. So we talk a little bit about what you mean by intentional self-transformation and, and what its connection with learning is. Sure. So, I mean, every leader that I know who is pushing the envelope and they're doing things that they've never done before. So that means that they have to build new capabilities. Uh, If you think about the results that you're getting today are a reflection of your understanding, your mental models, your, your own personal capabilities. And so that means that the limit to what you're able to achieve today is created from those very experiences and mental models. And so if you want to expand your ability to influence more, let's say that you're running a company, it's a $30 million company with 150 staff, and you want to be able to run a $150 million company with 1,000 staff. You know, you have to gain the experiences, the mental models that allow you to make that jump. Or if you want to be like Susan Neely and you want to change the way, you know, sodas dispensed in schools across the country, you've never done anything like that before. You need new experiences. And so that means you need to go out, meet other people who've done similar things, uh, learn to think in different ways and start to develop those capabilities. And that process is um, about more than studying. You can't just get that out of a book or off the web. You have to have it experientially. Uh, and you have to it, basically it's kind of like throwing yourself in the deep end of the pool and learning to swim. Mm. Uh, and that's what people need to learn to do. And, 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 and it's what I see in really good leaders is that they're doing that constantly. But when you get down to the next tier to the, um, the seat level team, you don't see that so much. You see people who, who focus and specialize and get really good at a narrow band of activities. So I'm always encouraging people to, to, to think about how they can change themselves to increase their influence and their ability to make change in the world. Yeah, when you said, you know, you can't uh, get there by studying and, and you emphasize that this is experiential learning, it also seems to me that it's tied with uh, informal and social learning. It's about tapping some, some peers. It's about um, what you can learn just by um, observing and then experimenting, which is, yes, a little different than the, the studying approach. Right. Yes. And so I, I know that you're someone who 
takes learning and and self-transformation, self-care very seriously. And so I'm wondering uh, what you've learned about leading in today's world, even since this uh, report came out, and it didn't come out that long ago, but uh, any new observations or, or what have you learned about leading since then? Well, the world is always changing. It's a very exciting place to be. And there's all kinds of breakthroughs that are happening, and they're happening at a, at a, at a greater and greater pace. And so what I see uh, among the leaders who are successful is that they're not only just kind of inhaling the developments. These are the people who are standing at the prow of the ship and leaning on the railing so they can be an extra three feet out in front, you know, is um, is that they're also um, – that they're constantly dabbling, they're constantly trying out little experiments. And we know that in organizations, pilots and prototypes and iterative development uh, are, is the new way to kind of get things started in the marketplace. But what I see leaders doing is doing that themselves um, in, in just among their staff, just among in, in, even in their private lives. They're trying out little things, they're doing little experiments all the time so they can see what really takes off. Mm, I like that, the idea of just uh, self-experimentation, <laughs> trying out things, seeing what the impact is, and then potentially building on that if it's having a positive impact. Um, so if we l- look kind of broad, big picture in terms of what's going on these days, um, you know, what what do you find most exciting? What do you feel like there's sort of a, you know, holds the most promise for, for the future? Well, um, I think that understanding really how technology is imp- impacting the the particulars of your sector or your profession, and then asking the question, how do we get ahead of that? For example, uh, Dale Sear at Intellios, uh, which is the umbrella organization that unites the various professional societies that are focused on ultrasound practitioners, has identified that the ultrasound device itself, the little wand and the computer that makes it work, uh, the cost for it is dropping very fast because of technology breakthroughs. So this is not a surprise. This is kind of in sync with everything that we know. Um, it's, you know, if you go into an, a doctor's office and they pull out an ultrasound laptop, you're generally looking at something that costs between five and 15000 Well, the price now is 2000 and in the next two years, it's going to drop to $600. And what that means is that people all over the planet are going to be using ultrasound because it's the best non-invasive way that we have to look inside the body. And uh, it requires professional expertise to do it. Uh, if you've ever watched someone, I mean, I, I'm not medically trained. When, when I look at an ultrasound machine, uh, there's very little that I recognize unless the person who's operating explains it to me. Well, that means everybody who operates an ultrasound needs some kind of training, some kind of an experience. But, you know, if we're talking about nurses, physicians in the United States, designing a professional training experience is really different than if we're talking about a midwife in Burkina Faso or a nurse in Chile, you know, uh, and what Dale is interested in doing is getting ahead of this curve and making sure that as ultrasound spreads around the planet, that everybody who ends up with a device in their hand uh, is able to do the right thing for patient safety, that they, they understand how the device works and they're able to get results that are consistent with the healing of the patient. That's a great example of, of this kind of thing. Yeah, that is a great example in terms of not just a changing, but really, I guess, an expanding view of the audience of, of that comprises your, your learners. It may change radically as the technology becomes even more widely available and cheaper. Um, so that's great. 
And it's, it's taking us into, you know, and this is, you know, I was at the World Bank for 13 years. When we talk about a global society, the truth is, is that we're not really at a global society. We don't have a single fabric that covers the planet. That when you go into working with uh, rural healthcare workers in India, you have a very different set of and issues and concerns and capabilities than when you're working with nurse practitioners in Argentina. And that's the way it is. It's all over the planet. Every audience, every geographic region, every profession has a lot of variety into it. And so we don't have a, a one-size-fits-all approach. So then if we want to have international expansion in an organization, how do you do that? And that's, I think, that's one of the great opportunities and challenges of our time. Indeed. And so uh, I'm going to switch gears and, and start wrapping up and ask you um, next to last question. And it's one that focuses on your personal learning. Um, and it's a question we've been asking everyone who comes on the Leading Learning Podcast of late. And since you've left your formal education, what is one of the most powerful learning experiences you've been involved in? Well, um, Probably there's a lot of them, but uh, one of my favorites is going to Tony Robbins events. Mm. Um, I love Tony Robbins. Uh, if there's any one thing that I would say is at the essence of what he teaches is that you are capable of so much more than you believe you're capable of, that you're that the limits on what a human being can do in this world uh, are much greater than any of us imagine based on our life experience and our brain's model of the world. And he teaches specific techniques for breaking that. And that that has been uh, just, for me, a real source of joy, but also of expanded impact. Um, and, and his events are very experiential. They're not just sitting in there taking notes. Uh, he has you doing things throughout the entire event. And I just love that environment. I love learning with other people. I love being in an environment that's exciting, that's filled with a lot of energy and enthusiasm, and that also is teaching very concrete skills and how to create breakthroughs in terms of personal influence. Well, yeah, that seems to fit very well with what we were talking about with the intentional self-transformation that it's really focused more on experiential learning and that this idea that it's kind of beyond the information that you might get from studying. It's about really understanding what you might be capable of uh, given a, a different mindset or a shifted mindset. So final question is, uh, if listeners want to know more about you and your work, where should they go? Uh, visionaryleadership.com. That's my website. Everything, I hang out there. You can send me an email at seth at visionaryleadership.com. Uh, and I'm, I would love to hear from people. Well, great. Thanks so much for making time for this conversation, Seth. It was great as always to talk with you. Likewise. I appreciate it very much. Take good care. That wraps up our interview with Seth Kahn. To get show notes for this episode, go to leadinglearning.com slash episode 157. When you check out the show notes, you're going to see various options for subscribing to the podcast. And if you're getting value out of what you hear, and if you're not yet subscribed, we'd be truly grateful if you would subscribe. It helps us to get some data on the impact of what we're doing with the podcast. We'd also be grateful if you take just a minute to give us a rating on iTunes or whatever service you use to listen to the podcast. For iTunes, you can just go to leadinglearning.com slash iTunes, and that will put you in the right place. So Lisa and I personally appreciate your rating and review, but more importantly, reviews and ratings play an important role in helping the podcast pop up when would-be listeners are searching for content on the business of lifelong learning. So consider leaving a rating and review for the Leading Learning Podcast as, well, one of your leadership acts of the day. 
And we'd be grateful if you would take a minute to visit our sponsor for this quarter, ReviewMyLMS.com. Jeff and I put a lot of time and energy into the Leading Learning Podcast, and one of the reasons we're able to do that is because we're able to generate revenue through other sources like ReviewMyLMS. So please check out ReviewMyLMS.com, and if you can, please contribute a review that will help others find the right platform for their needs. And finally, consider telling others about the podcast. You can send a tweet out simply by going to leadinglearning.com slash share, and that will magically pop up a tweet filled with a message for you to send out. Or if tweeting isn't your thing, you can take that language and put it into any social network or other medium of your choice. But whatever you do, please spread the good word. Thank you, and we'll see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast.